0: That apart from the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ being shed for you, that you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. But because of what Jesus has done, if you'll give your life to Him, you can have His life forevermore. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Would you hear with me the Word of God? Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the Apostle. And high priest of our confession, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Would you bow with me? God, we ask in the moments to come. Lord, that you would remind us of the priority of saving faith, that you would remind us what it looks like, how we know that we have it, and the importance of persevering in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, following on the conclusion of the section in which we find that Jesus is better than the angels, the author now is going to remind us or show us that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is not just better than the angels through whom the law was mediated, but he's also better than Moses to whom the law or the Old Testament writings were given. And what we see in these verses is that to exercise saving faith in Jesus, remember the context is one of persecution for their faith. And you really begin to know, do I really have the real thing when the real thing is tested, when it costs you something to have it? And so it's within that context that the author now shows us that to exercise saving faith in Jesus, we've got to know who we are in Christ. We've got to consider the Jesus of our confession. We must believe Jesus is worthy of more glory than even the greatest of those who serve among God's people. And finally, we must hold firmly to our present confidence and sure hope of future glory in Christ until he comes. Now, that's a, that's a mouthful, but it's all in verses 1 through 6. So let's break it down just point by point this morning. First, we've got to know who we are in Christ. We've got to know our identity. Fundamentally, faith is an issue of who are, whose are you? Who do you belong to? Do you belong to yourself still, or have you been bought with a price? And the author of Hebrews restates, restates several critical characteristics of those who belong to Christ, those who are of the household of God. First, they are holy. The word holy means to be separate and to be clean. While the world is wicked and fading away and pursuing the lusts of the flesh, while it's chasing hard after what Satan would want, we are the people of God, and therefore we should not be. Did you know the longer you live with Jesus in a world that is headed toward destruction, the weirder you will seem? If you don't seem more weird when you're 80 as a believer than when you were 10 as a believer, then that might be a warning sign. Because the world is unraveling. The world is headed toward destruction, and Christ is headed toward salvation, and that which is preserved and the longer you live, the weirder you become. I mean, 25 years ago, did you ever think that uh, marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman would be the law of the land? Did you think the conversations that are now normal and which, which now make you bigoted would ever be normal and accepted in our country? But they are. The longer you live for Jesus, the weirder you will seem to a world that is opposed to Him. And that's Okay. We're called to be holy. We're called to be marked off, set apart. This is the message of the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, the people of God were called to be set apart and to be clean before Him through sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice is the once-for-all sacrifice by which we've been set apart for God. The basis of our holiness is not what we do, but what Jesus has done for us and in us by His sacrifice to make us holy. And if it is true that we have saving faith, it's going to be demonstrated over time in our actions. And it's also going to begin to be demonstrated in how we respond when we fail to demonstrate the holiness of God. We're called to be holy, and holy people do two things. We actively pursue the righteousness of God, and when we fail to do that, we readily repent. We don't cover it up, we don't run away, we repent. We are also, not only holy, but brethren or brothers and sisters through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Did you know this morning that if you have an identical twin who's lost and you're saved, that you have more in common with a new believer in China that you'll never meet than you do with your identical twin? Through the blood of Jesus, you have more in common with other Christians than you do with your own family members who are lost. If God is our Father through the blood of His Son, that means we should have a love and a passion and a patience for the family of God, which exceeds even those elements for our own family. We should encourage, warn, and challenge and protect one another like family, because the truest brothers and sisters are the ones who will be brothers and sisters forever through the blood of Jesus. This is true because we partake in something that never passes away. We're holy we're brothers, and we are partakers of a heavenly calling. You remember a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus partook of our flesh and blood so that we could have heaven. And because Jesus partook of our flesh and blood, we can partake in the heavenly calling. The heavenly calling is this call to everlasting life forever in the presence of Christ in resurrected bodies, in the new heavens and in the new earth. It's the heavenly city, Hebrews 11:16. It's the new Jerusalem The city that is to come, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. The call from God to trust in Jesus is a call to heaven and a call from heaven. God is the source of the call and He is the goal of the call. We can partake in this heavenly existence through faith in Jesus because Jesus came down to bring heaven to us. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I press on. For the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But how do we press on? How do we get to our destination? It's one thing to say that you keep on running, but how do you keep on running? How in the Christian life do you continue to put one foot in front of the other when the world wants to stop you dead in your tracks? Point two, we must consider the Jesus of our confession. This is the main point of the entire paragraph, beginning in the second half of verse 1. Consider Jesus. It's a command. This is not an option, church. If you belong to Jesus, it's not like you might want to consider Jesus on occasion. The, The tense of the verb is, you have to keep on considering Jesus. You must be unrelenting in your consideration of Jesus. If you've been given entry into the family of God and the hope of heaven through the blood of Jesus, then what we must do is consider Jesus. The word means to constantly fix one's thoughts upon. What do you think about most of the week? Did you know that what gets your attention is what gets you? And the reason that the author of Hebrews so intently reminds us that we must consider Jesus is because Jesus is the one who came to have us. And we must fix our thoughts on Christ. To abide in Jesus, we must consider Jesus. Now, there are several implications of these two little words, consider Jesus. First, it's a plural command. This is not something for you to just go do individually on your own private time. Many of you are probably familiar with what I call quiet time Christianity. Did you have your quiet time today? Did you have your quiet time today? Did you have your devotion today? And that's great. That's good to do. But did you know you can have a quiet time seven days a week and never associate with the people of God and miss out on the thrust of this text? We together are supposed to gather corporately. We're supposed to meet together in small groups so that we can challenge one another and admonish one another and encourage one another. You are not made to consider Jesus just on your little private time in your little private corner for five minutes and have no fellowship with other believers. We must consider Jesus together to be the people of God, to be His children, to be brothers and sisters, we must be characterized by a constant consideration of Jesus. Which is why I'm concerned about our culture where going to church once a month is considered regular. Brothers and sisters, you're not considering Christ if you're neglecting the body of Christ. We must gather consistently for worship and consideration of Jesus. This is vital to our walk with Christ, meditating on the Word throughout the week that we've heard on Sunday. It means sermons must lead us to consider and exalt Jesus and not ourselves. It means that the lyrical content of our singing matters, because one of the primary purposes of music in the New Testament is that of edification, the building up of the body. We must consider the Gospel and teach it to one another by what we sing to God and to one Another. This is how we consider Jesus. It means, church, we must get beyond our right to privacy as Americans and instead move toward our need to be vulnerable as Christians so that our brothers and sisters can help us in our areas of weakness so that we might consider Jesus. We are on a pilgrimage together. Heaven is our destination. We are a family and we must keep on considering Jesus. Specifically, we don't consider just any old Jesus. We consider the Jesus of the Bible, the one who is called here Apostle and High Priest. This doesn't just mean the church. Notice He's the Apostle and High Priest of our, our confession. This doesn't mean that every week they got together and they recited a confession together. The word confession simply means the content of our belief and our conviction about Jesus. Heaven is the destination of those who are the children of Jesus, but only if they are the children of the right Jesus. Not if they believe in moralistic Santa Claus Jesus. He knows when you're sleeping, and He knows when you're awake, and He's handing out goodies to those who are good, and taking away from those who are bad. That's not Jesus. Not upward mobility in this world, Jesus. Well, I trusted in Jesus so I can get everything I want in this world. Not, He's good for my business, Jesus. If I put a little fish on my business card and Christians will come in and they'll trust me. Not a do better, try harder, Jesus. The Jesus that we confess is Apostle and High Priest. The the Jesus we confess must be understood as the Bible portrays Him. Only Jesus, who is Apostle and High Priest, can save. Apostle means sent out. Well, where was Jesus sent from? He didn't just show up on the earth. He was sent from heaven to the earth to be incarnate for us. He was sent by God on a rescue mission. And when we confess that He was sent, we confess also that someone had to come and rescue us. He was sent from heaven to bring us into the land of true promise and into our heavenly rest. He was sent to die and be raised and give us access to the Father as our high priest. This Jesus sent on a rescue mission from heaven, this one who is the lamb who bore the wrath of God for us, was raised up forever to be our high priest, who even now prays on behalf of God's people because his sacrifice once for all is always enough. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is who we confess. Thirdly, We must understand Jesus is worthy of more glory and honor than even the greatest of those who serve among God's people. The author of Hebrews has already shown us that Jesus is better than angels, but what about Moses? I mean, Moses was pretty spectacular. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He encountered the Lord on the mount. Moller says this, while Moses was incredible, Jesus is better in many important ways. Moses was a man. Jesus is the God-man. Moses was a sinner judged for his sin. Jesus is sinless, judged for the sins of his people. Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood. Christ changes the water into wine. Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage, into Egypt, out of bondage to Egypt, but failed to lead them into the land of promise. Christ, the second and greater Moses, leads his people out of bondage to sin and takes them all the way to the new heavens and earth. The author of Hebrews could have told us this. He could have said, look, it's very obvious all these ways that Jesus is better than Moses. But you know, that's not what he did. Instead, he's like, Moses was a really good dude. He did not argue like my sister and I argued against my dad growing up any of y'all have interesting relationship with your parents growing up I love my dad he's great but man he can argue and uh we used to have some debates in my teenage years into one two three o'clock in the morning down at the, when we get together at the beach and my sister is three years younger but even even into my college years generally speaking my sister and I see the world the same way and my dad is a bit of an outlier and so we would uh, whatever the topic is, in U.S. politics, you, you pick it. We would just love to debate. It's our love language. We just like to pick at each other. But my sister and I, you know, we could have been a little wiser. We could have been like the author of Hebrews, but instead we just went for the kill right up front. Like, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? Can't you see that your point is invalid? We win, you lose. There you go. And the reason I think we did that is because my dad would just drone on and on and on. So we tried to go for the punchline. But that's not what the author of Hebrews does. He starts where his audience is. Yes, of course Moses is a faithful guy. But still, returning to the law would be crazy. And the reason it would be crazy is because I'm not arguing with you about whether Moses is important or not. Of course he's important, but the reason he's important, you're about to miss. The reason Moses is important is because he was pointing the way to Jesus. And if you are focused on Moses, you're not even focused on what Moses would want you to focus on. Moses figures prominently in the writing of the Old Testament. He figures prominently in the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And verse 3 says that he was faithful to God, excuse me, verse 2, in all his house. Which means in his service to God among the people of God. O'Brien says this Moses was faithful to God despite opposition from others, including Israel, because they wanted to return to Egypt, because they lacked food and water. And he was also opposed by Miriam and Aaron, who challenged his leadership as God's prophet. Did you know Jesus also faced opposition? And he was likewise faithful as Moses was faithful. While Jesus and Moses are generally alike in their faithfulness, we see in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus is counted. Interestingly, it has been counted in the passive voice. Well, who's doing the counting? God has counted Jesus as worthy of greater glory than Moses. And I love this. It's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means once and for all, Jesus is worthy of greater glory than Moses. And I would add that he's of greater glory than any of the servants in the house, because he is over the house. Houses do not build themselves. Did you know that? Now, there's a lot of evolutionary scientists out there that need to know that houses can't build themselves. Because some of them, their theory of how the world came to be is no better than a tornado ripped through a junkyard and produced a Corvette. I mean, it's just crazy. They check their brains at the door so that they can check out of the reality that God made it all and that God is the builder of the house. But houses don't build themselves. And the author of Hebrews is basically saying, when you admire the intricacies of a house, you understand that the craftsman is worthy of greater glory than the finished product. When you go into the Sistine Chapel ceiling and admire the artistry, you think not only how beautiful the painting is, you also think of the skill and the endurance of Michelangelo. And when we think of God's house, when we think of the people of God, we must think of Jesus because Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses worked in the house, but Jesus built the house. And the potter is worthy of more glory than the clay so on the one hand Jesus is a human being and he's the high priest who's faithful to God like Moses but on the other hand because he is the son of God because he's divine and he has access into the throne room of God to take us and make us from enemies into sons and daughters he is the builder of the house and get this he's also verse four, the builder of all things do you see what he did he switches from Jesus To God, why? Because he's telling us once again, Jesus is God. God builds the people and God built everything. Therefore, we must give greater glory to Jesus than we do to anyone else who is in the house. Now the house refers to the people of God. Okay, The the builder of the house, the builder of God's people is Jesus himself. And he is once and for all counted by God as worthy of greater glory than anyone in the house. Moses, John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, your favorite pastor, whoever God has used down through the ages in your life spiritually, they are worthy of honor. But they are still just a part of the house. Jesus gets the honor of being the builder of the house. Moses or Anyone else worthy of your admiration, therefore, should see their role as pointing to Jesus. Do you see that in verse 5? Moses saw his life and ministry and service as a testimony to Jesus. You know the word testimony in Greek is the same word from which we get the word martyr? Moses faced a lot of adversity from the people that God called him to lead. I mean, when you read the book, and you see what, they, what Moses had to put up with. you got to go, man, this guy's an incredible leader. That he didn't lose his temper like every single day. I mean, he struck the rock one time, right? But, but by and large, Moses is a pretty incredible guy. And his life is aiming like an arrow to Jesus. He's trying to show us what the faithfulness of Jesus will be like. Moses was not about Moses. He was about Jesus. He knows that he is a servant, verse 5. Now, the word servant is not the same word that we typically find in the New Testament for servant. It is not the word doulos, which is often translated slave. It is rather a word that means a position of nobility under the authority of the one who appointed him. So it's actually, this word servant is a position of honor and of status. And the background of verse 5 is found in Numbers chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, Miriam and Aaron are being critical of Moses because, one, he's married to a Cushite woman, and two, they are jealous of his authority. And we read in verse 8 of chapter 12, With Moses, this is God speaking, With Moses I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Moses is a high-ranking servant. He's arguably the greatest leader and prophet in the entire Old Testament. And Moses still saw, even though he was an exalted servant in the house, he still saw the goal of his position in the house as something to be used as a testimony to the one who builds the house, of the one who would be spoken of later, the final word of God. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. If Moses, as great of a servant as he was, was pointing people to Jesus, God's Son, that means we must reject the temptation in our day to create a customized, individualized faith that is more about celebrity than it is about Jesus Christ. We must resist the temptation to make our faith about our favorite podcast or preacher or personality than it is faithfulness to Jesus, our high priest and builder of God's house. And he builds his house through faithful local churches, not through megachurch pastors and people that you can podcast. He does it through we, God's people, interacting week after week around his word, faithfully considering Jesus. Jesus did not come and give His life to build preachers or platforms or parachurch ministries. He came to build His house. Local communities of brothers and sisters following and exalting Jesus together wherever we are to proclaim the name of Jesus. Are you all here this morning? We're living in a culture that has more access to the content of the gospel than ever before, and we're losing the family in the process. God came to build His house. People. At the end of verse 5, the we is emphatic. We are God's house. He puts it up front, in the front of the sentence. It's us, the house of God is not a place that you go to. The house of God is who we are. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God belongs not to your favorite preacher, not to your favorite podcast, not to your favorite ministry. It belongs to Jesus, the builder of the house. God has many servants among His people but Jesus is the only Savior who bought us by His death and is lifting us up into life forever with Him through the power of His resurrection. Jesus is eternally better than Moses, your granddad, your grandmother, your mom, your dad, your pastor, or anyone else who is spiritually significant to you. And if we are truly members of God's house, we will not miss this last point. If we really believe in Jesus, the one who came down from heaven as the apostle and the one who was raised up as high priest to plead his blood for us, we will keep on exercising faith in Jesus. And we do that by continuing to hold firm to our present confidence and our glorious future hope in Christ until the end, until he comes. Do you see that in verse six? This is true if we hold fast until the end. Our author is concerned about the perseverance of his friends. Whether it's the waning of their initial enthusiasm. You've you've seen somebody that walks an aisle and prays a prayer and they're all excited and ten weeks later you can't find them anywhere. Whether it's the waning of their initial enthusiasm, whether it's the postponement of their hope, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, but where is he? And why am I afflicted for my faith? Whether it's the various kinds of peer pressure that they face in a world that's set against Jesus that is threatening the steadfastness of their faith, the author is aware that real faith, tried and true faith, genuine faith, isn't a faith that looks good for ten weeks and then fizzles. Real faith isn't a faith that faces the fire and then walks away. Real faith is tied to perseverance. And true believers are those who hold fast to the end. Now some people read verse 6 and they quickly undo the truth of the gospel that we found in chapter 2. They read the word if, and they go, well, it looks like you can lose your salvation. That's not what the author is saying. He's already told us in chapter 2 that you can't lose your salvation because when you're saved, God reaches down to seize you and never let go in the perfect tense. He keeps on holding you. But what the author is saying is if God has really taken you by the hand, then you're never going to default to your own works and your own ability as your confidence. Jesus will always be your confidence. Never let go of Jesus. And if Jesus has taken hold of you, you'll never let go of Him. The proof that God has taken the sinner by the hand and into salvation is not that someone prayed a prayer. It's not that they checked the box on a decision card. It's not that they ran down an aisle at a Billy Graham rally. It's not even that they got baptized. The proof of real salvation comes through perseverance to the end. In Christ, we have been truly saved if we truly endure, if we hold fast. Specifically, we must hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope. Where's your confidence this morning? What are you trusting in this morning? Are you trusting in a decision that you made when you were seven or ten? but you ran away from for 30 or 40 years? Are you trusting in making good grades or your pension? Or living in a country that's got a good economy? Are you trusting in your health? Are you, or your nice home or your family or your friends? Or are you trusting in Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest, who gives us confident access into the presence of God? The true children of God never let go of Jesus as their confidence before God. Our trust and our boast is not in ourselves. Our trust is in Christ crucified for me. And that is what we come to the table in just a moment to celebrate. Hebrews never urges us to trust in our own abilities or our own merit. It tells us to hold fast to Jesus who alone can save us. And if you're holding fast to Jesus, you have a hope that will not disappoint. It's a glorious hope. It's a hope where you're restored to the original purposes for humanity to reign forever with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a hope where Christ, your Savior, dwells. So this morning, if you've been rescued by Christ, I want to urge you to keep holding fast to Jesus, the builder of the house. He is our confidence. He is our hope. As our deacons make preparations for the Lord's Supper, would you pray with me, church? Lord Jesus, we have no boast, we have no confidence, we have no hope apart from you. God, I pray that North Roanoke Baptist Church, that we would be God's house, holding down, holding fast, clinging in all sorts of situations, in all sorts of circumstances. God, clinging to the fact that Jesus' shed blood for us is enough. And not only is it enough, it's all we have. God, help us not to run to anything less than Jesus, the Apostle, and our High Priest, who shed His blood for God's house. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.